This morning's scripture reading is from the Apostle Paul's letter to Colossians, chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is God's word. We discovered last week that the first degree of deception that often occurs among Christians is good advice from a good source is like good news from the source. What happens is we get this, these advice from people you know, in everyday life. We talked about it as Facebook advice, normal people. That seems pretty helpful. Uh, others seem to think it works. So what I'm going to do is gradually begin to trust it like good news from the source. So it's spiritual, it's Christian enough, it sounds pretty good, it seems helpful. So I'm going to trust it like the good news from the source, who is Christ. And what happens is people don't mean it, they don't intend it, but it often deceives us. Putting our hope in that kind of advice. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about the power of of the good news and the sufficiency of the source. And I've kind of gone back and forth on which to do first. Because while deception works like this, you get good, sort of plausible advice first, and then you keep going back to the source, right? The antidote, as Paul puts it, is the opposite. You learn Christ, the source first, And then apply the power of the good news that he offers. Uh, In fact, but the former idea, right, that we usually get the advice first and go back to the source, really, I think, shows how warped we become as a society. And I include myself in that. We take and apply advice not really caring so much from whom it comes. You know what I'm talking about? If, you know, they say that politics makes strange bedfellows. So does taking advice. Right? Sources that we might otherwise not respect, we might not otherwise go to, but they give these sort of quick fixes, or they kind of tell us what we want to hear, and so we take it. And then we go back to them. Right? So we will take advice from people regardless of the source. I want to contrast this with the uh, 16th century French monk who was basically a short order cook, loving Jesus back then, and he said this, Brother Lawrence is his name, wrote The Practice of the Presence of God. We have to know someone before we truly listen to them. In order to know God, we must think about him often. And once we get to know him, we still think about him even more often. Because where our treasure is, there also is our heart. He gets it right. Getting to know the source 
And then we could trust what they say. And so today we're going to think about Jesus, as Brother Lawrence advocates, and then think about him a little more often over the next few Sundays. In fact, so far we've kind of danced around, kind of jumped around in Colossians just to get a feel for the context of what's going on with this church and what they were facing, how they were processing through this potential deception. Now that we got that in order, we're going to slow dance all right, through the rest of Colossians 1. All right? In the theme of February, right, month of romance, we're going to do the box step. We're going to lean our head on Colossians' shoulder. All right, we're just going to slowly drink in this antidote that Paul gives to help us ward off deception and believe and live out truth in our life. So, let's do this. All right, verse 15. He is, this is Christ, He is the image of the invisible God. We're going to stop there. That's how slowly we're going. All right, so right here we get a reliable portrait of the invisible. I'll explain what I mean. A few weeks ago, Katie, uh, our boys and I were at uh, Georgetown Primary through our Adopt-A-School outreach for at-risk youth, and they're just some fantastic kids with this program. I'm just very grateful for them. I mean, it's really been awesome. And now, usually, we are there during the exercise portion. They do different programs, and we're there during, like, this, this calisthenics and the aerobics and this sort of thing. I, I look pretty silly. Uh, and, and I am nearly always caught wearing my sandals. All right, I'm coming from a meeting or something like that. I got my, my, my nice sandals, granted, but my sandals. And so myself, at this point, and a couple other kids are straggling behind. And when I noticed this little, this little 25-cent piece on the ground, so I picked it up, and before the, the kids could understandably try to mooch it off me, I uh, pointed to the visage of Her Majesty on one side, and I just asked them, hey, you guys know who this is? And one could say, oh, it's, that's my grandma. I'm <laughs> not really sure about that. But, and the other quickly, <laughs> they quickly replied, no, you cruff, it's the Queen, Queen Elizabeth. I had to look up Cruff later, which was uh, kind of enjoyable. So, and so, just to play around, I said, oh, you know, how do you know that? Have you ever actually seen her in person? I guess, you know, no. Have you seen her on TV? No. In other words, he, he knew the Queen's likeness only from this ingrained portrait on a coin. Otherwise, she was a no one. Right? She was only a name. She was otherwise invisible. For this child. What we see is a similar moment with a coin in the Gospels that talk about Jesus. Jesus' opponents are questioning him with regard to loyalty and paying taxes. Right, not an unusual question for our day either. And, and this is how Jesus replies in Matthew 22. He says, show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius, which was the coin that day. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They say, well, it's Caesar's. And he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. Jesus' objects were pretty limited for this particular object lesson. That's my point here. How else were people of the first century who lived a thousand and a half miles from Rome supposed to recognize this guy Caesar? That was impossible. He did not have his face on a t-shirt. Or, you know, he didn't appear weekly on Meet the Press. He had currency. Currency was the way to spread his face and thus his fame. 
as we think about that, consider this statement by Paul that we just read. Jesus brings visibility to the invisible. It's pretty remarkable. It's the exact imprint of who God is, and that's the language used here in Colossians, that brings visibility to the invisible, and not just anything invisible, right? The capital I, invisible, for, for whom many of us have searched, pondered, considered, cried out to, even given up on. This I, invisible. Or John puts it a little bit differently in John 1.18, but it's the same idea. It says, no one has ever seen God but the only God who is at the Father's side has made Him known. In other words, what this is saying here is that Jesus is literally, in this language, the exegesis of God. You don't know what that means? Basically, it's a fancy word for translation. That Jesus is the translation of an otherwise incomprehensible language. An otherwise unknowable God. And so Paul actually here reinforces this truth, right? In verse 19, as Anna reread this earlier, for, for in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And if you turn the page to Colossians 2, verse 9, he repeats this again. For in Him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He's hammering home this point and reinforcing this truth. And here is Jesus bringing visibility to what is otherwise invisible. No other religion, by the way, makes this claim. You know this? For, all, for some of us here, some of you might think, you know, Christianity, it's kind of in the melting pot with all the rest of the religions. Right, you've heard this before. It's, it's pretty much the same. The idea is pretty similar. That's simply not the case. Siddhartha, Buddha, you often know him, claimed clearly to be reaching some, to something beyond himself. You have Muhammad, learns about Allah in a cave. What is, he, what, what is the frequent statement in the Quran? There is one God, Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. There is no claim to divinity. Only Jesus claims to be the living, historical, exact representation of an otherwise invisible God. There's no one... Like him, there's no religion that claims anything like this. And everything about Christianity hinges on Jesus being God. So out with the idea, these religions are the same. But they're so similar. Now there's none like Christianity, whether you agree or disagree with it. God seems so distant when we think about him. He's so out there, so unknowable. But he lived on earth, and thus he can be studied. He can be studied. Not just in the Bible, but other historians, his contemporaries, write about him. For instance, the uh, Greek historian Thallus referred to the darkness that occurred at the time of the crucifixion. This is recorded in ancient history. We have, I'm just giving you a few here, the Roman historian Tacitus said, referred to Christ who has been executed by the sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate in the reign of Tiberius. He went on to speak out. And Josephus, a, a Jewish Pharisee, an aristocrat, wrote that Jesus was a wise man, wrought surprising feats, taught many, gathered a large following, was crucified by Pilate. You have all this, this compendium of history. Some called Jesus the Christos, who 
was a magician, some called him, because of these feats he did. And you can see this in historical documents. But you can also learn Christ from the Bible in places like the Gospels. And he refused to read the Gospels or the Bible because they assumed that they're biased accounts of history, written by people who wanted to retain power, wanted to hold sway over people. Each of the four Gospels, though, was written and widely circulated in less than 60 years after Jesus' death. Why is that so important? It's good for you to know this, whether you're a Christian or not, especially if you're not a Christian and you haven't trusted Christ. The fact that the Gospels were written and widely circulated less than 60 years after Jesus' death, of this fact, A.N. Sherwin White, an expert in early Roman history, has said even two generations are too short a span to allow mythical tendency to prevail over the hard historical core. In other words, his point was, when we study ancient history, we think about things like what was legend? What was myth? How are people trying to put out propaganda about themselves? A key component was how long things were both written and disseminated after person had done something great or after the person had died. But there were so many copies, so much circulation of the Gospels less than just two generations after Jesus' death that he claims that, you know, for it to be a myth, that just blows the cap of, of everything we, we study and all the measurements we take about the validity of ancient history. So when you read Jesus say, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. When you read about him walking on water, about him rising from the dead, that over 500 people witnessed him risen, that's as reliable as Alexander the Great's conquest of the known world. If you believe that, historically you should believe Jesus. If you believe that Caesar crossed the Rubicon, which we just sort of assume there's Christ rose from the dead. Learning Christ, just learning Him, it's the antidote. It's the antidote that Paul begins with. But I think learning Him seems so counterintuitive, doesn't it? It's counterintuitive as just good, practical advice. It's counterintuitive as a solution. It's counterintuitive as being pragmatic. By the way, I'm going to get more to the problem of pragmatism next week. But I think you know what I'm talking about, that it's just useful, quickly. Uh, but I propose that we haven't taken the time or the care to learn Him in the Scriptures, to know that He spoke and He still speaks to our 21st century concerns and problems that we face. But it's also counterintuitive because we live in a fallen world. When things right aren't right up in front of our face, in our grill, immediate access. It's hard to see because of the fall, because sin has entered this world. Because of that, everything is unclear. It's indirect. Everything is out of focus. It's blurry. So if it's not right in front of us, it's hard to get to. It's hard for our minds to focus long enough. Uh, Bill Mills, a former adjunct professor at my old seminary, and he wrote a little book called Adequate. He reminds us this is just such a cool thought. He says this, Now the very fact that God, before the fall, called 
mankind, called Adam and Eve, to eat from the tree of life and forbid them from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we know that God is saying to them, it is much better to know me than to know everything else there is to know. That's the way we were intended to live. There's a comparison here with these two trees in the garden. And it's far better, guys, is to know me than to know everything else there is to know. And we choose to learn other things. We can know him. Well, let's continue then to get to know him. All right? Verse 15b. <laughs> He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. I remember uh, Katie first asking me a number of years ago what my favorite toy was growing up. One of the great things about marriage, you learn things as you go along. You don't ask other things. I remember asking what my favorite toy was growing up, and it gave me pause. Because I remember storming, you know, there are lots of great toys. Ultron. I remember storming the aisles for the new Transformer. Remember Transformers? Uh, I can recall humming the theme song to G.I. Joe. All right, anyone know G.I. Joe out there? He's a real, he's a real American hero. I'm sorry, I know we're in a cross-cultural world. But, but all of these paled in comparison. I wish there was a Canadian hero like that. I'm sure there is. I need to learn about him later. I can recall humming the theme song to G.I. Joe, but, but all of this paled in comparison to He-Man. All right, if you know He-Man, he from he was the master of the universe. You may remember, all right? He, he was the man. And he was humble enough, all right, because you, you know, he was your average humble prince by day, you know, wearing rags, he had the long blonde hair, but he's average. And then, but by night, by night this guy, he would raise his sword, he would shout, I have the power, hour, hour, hour. Like that, and, and then a lightning would hit his sword, but he wouldn't die. He never died from lightning hitting a metal object in his hand. He would just transform. He transformed into He-Man. It was, just, it was awesome, you know, and it forced me to go outside with metal baseball bats and golf clubs and, and, and lightning storms, which was really a great message, I thought. But anyway, uh, so he would transform into the master of the universe. And that's pretty heady stuff, you know, for humble prince. Also, anytime he asked for something, he would say, uh, by the power of Grayskull. Which was very similar to what Jesus would say, right? According to the Lord's will. You know, it sounds very, in fact, I think this really He-Man was preparing me for Jesus. One of my theories in life. I think it's true. Just secretly, he was like a type of Christ. But I wanted, okay, I loved this, I loved He-Man. I, I wanted to sound like him. I wanted to be like him. I wanted to look like him. But instead, my destiny was to look more like Skeletor. <laughs> All right, so I, I just don't have the same frame. But it's okay. I'm content with that. Now, <laughs> Jesus Christ, he combined the he and the man. The him and the man become the master of the universe. Now, how does this verse express that? Because if you read what I just read, it, sound, it says that he was the firstborn. He was the first created by God among all created things. So to explain this, I've got to explain one Greek word this morning. I've just given you one. A word called prototokos. One word here, that uh, means firstborn. It's translated firstborn. All right, proto, meaning, guess what proto means? Anyone think they might know? First, yes, like uh, 
or, or, or uh, uh, sort of the primary from which we get what? Prototype. And then we have tocos, which is born. Back in the day, all right, the inheritor of a double portion, uh, there, there was an inheritor of the double portion of the father's estate was the firstborn. The firstborn would, was, would get the father's estate and step into the role as head of the family. He'd be the, uh, the pater familias, right, as a lot of Italian mob movies like to say. So the firstborn can have two meanings. They have a dual meaning. The son who's the oldest child of his dad. Number two, the inheritor and executor of his dad's estate, of his dad's property. All right, so oldest son of the first, you know, oldest son of the dad, but also the inheritor and executor of the father's property. Now, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, which Paul was very familiar with, this word prototokos is used 130 times, firstborn, 130 times, usually, but not always, usually, but not always, has more to do with the first place of birth rather than being the top dog. But as we know, as you might know if you read the Bible, the firstborn physically didn't always land someone in charge of the family. Didn't put them in first place. Think of people like Isaac, Jacob, neither firstborn, yet you got two out of the three, right, forefathers of the faith, Israelites. Actually, God constantly did this in Genesis. Or it would not be the actual physically firstborn who would be head of the family. It would be someone different. Consider Psalm 89.7 where God says to the Davidic king, I will also make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. In other words, the idea here is he put him in the place where he formerly wasn't. The New Testament, I'm going somewhere with this, it's important. The New Testament use of this word is more like the psalmist here. It's a complete reversal from most of the Old Testament. In the New Testament, this word, firstborn, is used eight times. Only one time does it refer to birth, birth order. And that's Jesus' actual physical birth in Luke chapter 2. Otherwise, seven of the eight times, it is used to indicate preeminence and authority. So Romans 8.29, Hebrews 1, 5 and 6, Hebrews 11, 24-28, Hebrews 12, 12 22-23, Hebrews Revelation 1, 5 through 6, and here in Colossians 1, 15 and 1, 18. Preeminence and authority is the firstborn. Each time the idea is that Jesus is in charge of all the Father's property. He's in charge of the universe. Now why does this matter? Why is this important for us to know? I'll give you a couple reasons. Number one, to know how to love with the truth those knocking at your door. Uh, when Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door, all right, they got their uh, Watchtower magazine. You know, or if you don't know what Jehovah's Witnesses are, they're the nicely dressed people who uh, are coming to your door. They're, they're approaching your door. When they approach your door, what do you do? Let's just be honest here. What do you normally, you have a number of options. So you know I'm a very frank person of what you, you might do. One, hide in your bathroom. Right, that's option number one. You're, oh, oh my gosh, I, I didn't need to go to the restroom. Let's go now. Uh, number two, pretend to be on the phone. Right, if you've got windows, it's important. Right, they're coming up, they see you. Oh my goodness, got the phone call. Huh, what? Oh, 
yeah, oh, and then you walk away. All right, number, number three, trick your spouse into re- answering the door. <laughs> right, there's one of those like, oh, oh, goodness, you know, I'm, I'm taking care of the kids, or oh, just had an emergency at work, or whatever it might be. Can you please get the door? Uh, and then number four, act like you're on your way to a world-defining meeting. Right, you can't talk. Like, re- in reality, you're just cashing a check, or you're depositing a check at Cayman National Bank. But, another, but you're, oh my goodness, I've got to go to a meeting. I'm so sorry. Please come back again. Right? So these are some of the ways, often, front days, but there is hope for conversation, friends. To love people with the truth. Hope for conversation. Because one of the main arguments of a Jehovah's Witness to persuade you towards their very different understanding of Jesus and the Bible is to say, even your Bible says that Jesus Christ was a created being. If you actually talk to Jehovah's Witnesses and get into it just a little bit, they will tell you, you know, you, did you know that Jesus is a created being and your Bible says so? And pressing this point further, as it's happening in multiple occasions, they will, they will point you to Colossians 1.15. He's the firstborn over all creation. That's what it says right here. To which you can lovingly and certainly lovingly and respectfully say, well, actually, you know, ancient culture and Old Testament, that word firstborn, it can refer to birth order or the head of the family, head of family rights. That's the first thing you can say. second thing you can say is that, look, seven out of eight New Testament passages surveyed agree that Jesus is the head honcho and not birthed first sometime around Genesis 1. If you read, it's, oh, it's talking about preeminence out of, of authority. If you look at that, you'll see that. Just have that conversation. Point them to the truth. I want to encourage you with that. second reason this matters is this. I'm going to close with this this morning. I told you we're, we're going one verse at a time. My, my plan is uh, for Jesus uh, to not return. By the time Jesus returns... We will not have finished Colossians. I should say it that way. So uh, we'll see if that works out. But second reason this matters, this is important. Jesus isn't surprised by anything in his universe. He is not surprised by anything in his universe. No hunger pains, job loss, no surgery, no illness, no mistreatment, no injustice, no lose-lose conundrum you find yourself in, no strained relationship. Not to mention no unusual black holes nor interplanetary movements. Surprise! Christ. It is His universe, baby. He is prepared to work in and work through all those things as means to help us trust Him more and make us more like Him. What's especially revelatory about Jesus as the Master of the universe is that He is the same Jesus, the same Jesus who weeps when His good friend Lazarus dies. Even though he knows he's going to raise him from the dead, he weeps for him. It's the same Jesus who lovingly takes out a, a towel and a basin and washes the feet of his good friends. The same Jesus that while experiencing the most humiliating, excruciating death in human history, looks outside of himself to find a home for his mother and to find a mother for his young friend John on the cross. 
experiencing the wrath of God. Jesus cares for others. This is Christ. The one who mankind can supremely trust to run our universe because he constantly considered the good of others. People like you and me, even as he received their worst. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the image of the invisible God. I love this this great hymn. Image of the invisible God, firstborn over all creation. Use that to blow our minds and our hearts, Lord. I'm trusting this morning that that your word is sufficient, Lord. That reading the words on this page are enough to expand not only our minds, but our hearts to trust you, maybe to know you for the first time, to see you as we've never seen you before, Jesus. This is master of the universe, maker of the stars, runner of the planets, one who thinks of us, knows every hair on our head. Jesus, may we look and just love and adore Christ. Help us put aside, how am I going to apply this this week? How am I going to do with this? And instead, just sit at your feet and get to know you by putting down those roots in our life. Any, any wind of deceit, any wave of false advice will not shake us because of our rock, Jesus. It's you we praise. Amen.